0: We're very lucky to have Preet Bharara with us today. Um, when I am confused and I am scared, I turn to you because you are smart and you are sober and you explain things in a way that I understand. Um, I'm also scared. Shit. Um, <laughs> w- let's start with impeachment.
1: Um, where, where are we? Um, I don't freaking know. Um, so, uh, I, sp- I spend a lot of my time, since I was fired by the President of the United States, a fact about which I'm very proud. Uh, watching the impeachment proceedings, thinking about the impeachment proceedings, wondering what's gonna happen next. And I guess we're gonna have another day of softball questions that each side asks of its own people. And then a vote on witnesses. I was optimistic a couple of days ago. You know, I, you, both of us have done trial work for parts of our career. And I've never heard of a trial that doesn't have witnesses and doesn't have documents. It's a powerful message. It also makes logic and logical and common sense. Then you have John Bolton, who has this book and this book. He's not here today, is he? I would not, not there do we know of. Because that would have been a good get. And he could have said all these things, <laughs> and then the privilege would have been waived, and, and we'd know more stuff, and maybe he'd testify. So I was more optimistic a couple of days ago that, that given how bizarre it is, not to have witnesses generally, and then you have a top advisor of the President of the United States, the former National Security Advisor, who says he's prepared to testify if subpoenaed, has not only relevant information, but but direct firsthand information that undermines the, the central thesis of the defense of the President of the United States. How on earth do you not have him testify? And yet... I don't think that he will. So
0: you worked on Capitol Hill. You were Chuck Schumer's chief counsel um, for, for several years. I, I took over your job. You, you, you did. I hire well, apparently. <laughs> um, uh, and and when you were there, you were not only known as, a, to borrow John Lovett's line, a straight shooter, respected on both sides, but you were able to work with Republicans who were sober and thoughtful. and. Obviously, work. I work with the, I can work
1: with the drunk ones also. Right.
0: <laughs> um, w- w- are they still there? Like, what? What? What's happened? Why? Why don't? Why aren't we able to have a real discussion about this and have Republicans who are saying, "Yeah, trial should have witnesses. Rule of law matters."
1: Because I think what matters more than the rule of law is tribal power, and that was already the case. I mean, I remember you're you're talking about the judicial nomination wars back when you were chief counsel on that committee, and then it got you know more polarized when I was there. And since we've both been gone, I think it's gotten worse and worse. And I think it gets even worse than all of that when you have a President of the United States who makes it very clear that principle doesn't matter for anything, truth doesn't matter for anything. The only thing that matters is that you're on his side or not on his side. And I do think that there are people in the Senate and in the House, who are people of good conscience, but they, they are intimidated by the President of the United States. They're intimidated by the possibility of a primary challenge. They're intimidated by the possibility of being called out by the president in a tweet. They're intimidated by the the hordes of supporters of the president who will call them out. Uh, And so I think they don't do what they think is right. Look, Jeff Flake, um, who could speak his mind more than others because he was leaving and now he has in fact left, said, and I think he's probably not wrong about this, if you could have a secret vote in the Senate, secret ballot, there would be 30 to 35 votes in favor of impeaching and removing the president of the United States. Because how can they prefer this person to Mike Pence if you're a Republican? And yet there's an intimidation factor. And so I think that, that trickles down to the, to the staffs and to others. Look, Lindsey Graham, you remember this. Um, this might surprise some people. Lindsey Graham was you know, one of the senior members on the Judiciary Committee both when Jeff, when Jeff and I both worked there successively. I found him to be a reasonable person and a good guy. And funny. And funny and, and a very good trial lawyer. Uh, and he hung out in that McCain orbit, there was some halo there, whether or not you agreed with everything that McCain stood for, and he's not anything like that person, and the only, I guess there's two theories, one of which, you know, um, is that, like people say this about everybody who supports the president, what dirt does the president have to say about them? I, I don't think that's the case. He's from South Carolina, and his ratings, his poll ratings have gone up enormously, substantially, since he's been basically uh, an uncritical supporter of the president. That's what I think is partly what's going on.
0: So let, let's, let's just go really like brass tacks on what's gonna happen in the next couple of days. Um, it, it seems there are three votes on the Republican side for witnesses. It would seem that way. Romney, Murkowski, Collins. Yeah, I, n- I never know about Collins. So let's, let's just say that there are three but not four. Yeah. 50-50, yeah. assuming all the Democrats stay together.
1: Yeah. Does Roberts break a tie? So my understanding is, the given understanding is that normally when there's a 50-50 tie, the vice president breaks the tie, that would not be the case here. It would be Roberts. My sense is that Roberts will let it stand. He has not shown himself to be uh, in a position to be aggressive or take any kind of, not even central role, but even peripheral role, other than reading the questions that are asked by senators and written on a piece of paper. And I don't know that he wants to break, I think the worst thing in the world for him, the person I feel most bad for in some ways, other than... All of America uh, is is John is John Roberts, who cannot be happy sitting up there, and he I think prides himself on not getting into politics, and wanting to preserve, you know, institutional integrity, and so I don't think he wants to put a thumb on the scale one way or the other. So my guess is, my guess is that he will simply abstain. What do you think?
0: I don't know, I get to ask you the questions today. So under that theory, pretty seriously, like if, if the House managers made a motion straight to Roberts to call witnesses, bypass the Senate, right? It's a trial, we have relevant witnesses, we wanna call them. You think Roberts refuses to rule on that as well?
1: Yeah, but I don't know if it even would, if the posture would be such that, that that would happen, that McConnell couldn't figure out a way to put it directly to the Senate. I mean, one of the questions, one of the, I think, more interesting questions that was asked yesterday by a senator um, and the point that was made by um, by Chairman Schiff of the Intelligence Committee, who I think is doing doing an amazing, amazing job, uh, is we're prepared to let the guy sitting behind me, referring to Chief Justice Roberts, we're prepared to let the guy sitting behind me rule on these questions of relevance and admissibility of evidence and witnesses coming to testify and all of that. We'll abide by whatever he chooses so we don't have to litigate in this way. And the reason he's saying that is because one of the arguments that the White House is making to senators is vote against witnesses, otherwise there's gonna be a long protracted legal battle in the courts going months and possibly coming into the eve of the election in November, and God, you don't want that. But I don't know that McConnell is gonna permit that kind of direct request to, to Roberts. I don't know if he's gonna allow that to happen.
0: And in the unlike, seemingly unlikely event that, that we get there and the president invokes executive privilege Setting aside all the craziness about, you know, it's not true, but it's classified, what have you. Right. Um, could Roberts rule from the chair on that? Does that have to go to the courts, or could Roberts just make a, make a ruling?
1: I mean, I guess he could, but again, going back to what I was saying earlier, I don't think he wants to for a couple of reasons. One, he may not see it as his role. I mean, Rehnquist, when he presided over the Clinton impeachment trial, didn't do much in that way. And then, and then the other reason is even if he made a ruling, the Senate, the Senate procedures allow for him to be overruled, And that's a terrible look for the Chief Justice of the United States. Okay,
0: so I I wanna come back in a minute to Dershowitz's argument yesterday and implications, but you referenced Bolton and how nice it would be if he were here on stage today. (laughs) Um, He could be. He could be in CNN studios with you and Anderson Cooper tonight. Um, He could be on your podcast tomorrow if that's what he wanted to do. Why, why not do that at this point? It looks like he's not going to be called a witness. Why not come forward yeah, look, maybe, now? Maybe he's
1: thinking about that, because he's an odd figure, aside from the mustache. <laughs> he, he leaves. He gets fired. I'm in, I'm, in, I'm in the company of John Bolton, also. Um, and then he clearly doesn't want to come testify. He resists the request from the House. Then he gets a book deal, then randomly uh, at the beginning of the year, I think on January 6th, he announces, "I've, I've considered it and there was a court ruling that maybe affected his decision making also with respect to his deputy, I'm prepared to testify. I think that some of what's going on for him is how is it gonna look for him if for the first time people hear all this crazy narrative about what the president said about the drug deal and everything else in a book on which he's making probably a lot of money. It actually makes him look like a bad American. And I think the criticism of him has probably gotten to him a little bit, and he realizes that he should get some of that story out through some formal, I mean, he looks like, for the first time, he didn't look like this in the fall, he looks like he really wants to come testify. And depending on how the battle over his book works out, I wouldn't put it out of the question that he will go and do some one-on-one interview with a favorable interviewer. Which you would be if you were interviewing him. I would be a very favorable interviewer, uh, much like yourself. Uh, and get it out. And there's, look, there's very little to stop him from doing that. I mean, the, the ball, I'm not sure whose who's court the ball is in with respect to his book. I mean, he has a book. All the stuff is in the book. Lots of people have seen the book. There's an argument, depending on who has seen the book and what the, the, the president wants to do about it, that there has been a waiver of, of executive privilege but they have said even though they were only supposed to review it for classification and John Bolton's a pretty smart guy and should know what's classified and what's not classified and I find it hard to believe that he and his publisher submitted a manuscript that is what the president's lawyers now say is full of classified information for a lot of reasons it sounds like they're trying to prevent the publication of the book in a way that they have pretty much full authority to do so I think they're effing with him I don't think it's morning, so I didn't want to use the whole word. And it it puts Bolton in a bind because they're not saying you can't publish the book in total. They're not saying that there are portions of the book that have executive privilege so we should talk about that. They're saying that publishing this book violates law and hurts sources and methods because there's classified material there. And the government is the arbiter, most courts would say, of what is classified and what's not. The reason you know that's probably BS is That manuscript has been sitting around. uh, My understanding is unsecured in some National Security Council staffer's office. It may be the case that it's sitting on all sorts of other unsecured servers. They have not taken efforts to go get them. I mean, they did. Remember when Jim Comey had those couple of memos? They went to the professor's office and took the documents back. They have not seemed like they're taking seriously a, a sensitive classified information leaking threat, but they're saying it now, and it has all the hallmarks of being a political move. And, and
0: what, what then happens if Bolton says, well, you're effing with me, I'll eff with you. I'm publishing my book. It's out. What are you going to do? And
1: they, I mean, that's happened before. Well, there have been arguments, and it, and it looks like people who have been in the intelligence community want to write their book. And it's, it's supposed to be a 30-day um, career-oriented process where they just look at classified information, and they don't try to screw with somebody just because they've been a critic of the administration. I wrote a book, um, which I can plug here, called Doing Justice. Where Good book. Where I, where I submitted it for pre-publication review. There's nothing classified in it, but I had some concern. I'm, a, I'm not John Bolton, but I'm a critic of the administration and the Justice Department. And in my case, 27 days later, I didn't get the letter that John Bolton got. I got a letter saying, you know, thank you, there's nothing classified in here. Good luck with your book. That's how it's supposed to work. Depending on the cojones of the publisher and John Bolton, they could rush out and publish it, and they can have a fight afterwards. I, I think it's very difficult um, for the administration to, to, to do uh, you know, pre-publication blocking of the book, but it, it's kind of a game of chicken at this point.
0: So let's just, the, the flowchart gets kind of crazy and we can only go down so many of them, but let's say no witnesses, a quick acquittal in the Senate on a, effectively a party-line vote, the book comes out, Bolton speaks, and it is as bad as any of us can imagine, right? Are we at the bottom finally now? And Kelly goes, yep, that, that all happened when I was there, and it's validated up and down the chain. Um, does impeachment get reopened? Is that even possible? Or no, I don't think it happens? does. I don't think
1: it does. What I, what I think happens, I think, I think the Democrats have done, they haven't done everything right, but the one thing they've done a good job of is making the case that a trial without witnesses generally, and a trial without John Bolton specifically, is absurd and a sham. And it's not only the case that they make that argument and the trial happens, say, oh, it was was absurd and a sham, and then people forget and go about their business. No, in six weeks, John Bolton will be going on a book, assuming that they, they play out this fight about the book, John Bolton will be going on a book tour and will be on every television channel and cable news channel in the country talking about all this stuff that the senators could have heard for themselves and could have cross-examined him on and explored. And then maybe there'll be other revelations. And it just makes the people who voted, you know this you know, from politics, it makes every senator who voted against, the specific vote against hearing testimony at a Senate trial from John Bolton, when the president's lawyers kept yelling about no first-hand witness, no first-hand witness, and then he's on a book tour talking about his first-hand knowledge, I think is very problematic for certain senators politically in November. I don't know that you reopen, And look, it's it's another, the nightmare scenario about how Trump has made everything terrible is the Mueller investigation happens, lots of bad stuff, he gets away with it for various reasons. This thing happens, we have an impeachment, we have a trial, he gets away with it. My fear for the country and for democracy and all other things good and holy is that you could see some other thing emerging with new information in July, not even further to this, that's fully impeachable. I think the president is kind of politically Im- immune from a second impeachment, right? So, I think it was important to do to what the Democrats did, it was important to have a trial. But in some ways, I don't mean to sound so grim, uh, the fact that the president keeps escaping accountability from these things allows him to do worse things in the future, for which he probably will not be held accountable, the solution to, the solution to which is, one, that he be defeated in November.
0: So one of the arguments that... The-
1: that, that-, that applause was not nearly hearty <laughs> enough. <laughs>
0: So one of, one of the arguments that the, the president's lawyers and defenders um, have made is that um, there was no crime committed yeah. and you can't impeach if there's no crime. Um, without having to go back and read Hamilton, um, help us understand that.
1: So I, look, lots of people in this debate and in, over the law generally, they have good arguments and bad arguments. That's one way to divide them. They also have superficially nice sounding arguments that are not necessarily good arguments. It's a superficially nice sounding argument. If you're going to impeach the president and remove him, and the Constitution says high crimes and misdemeanors, it should be a crime. It's a little bit harder sometimes to make the right argument. But the right argument is the opposite of what they're saying, for a number of reasons. First, we didn't have a criminal code at the time the founders wrote that. The founders also talked about abuse of power that was not necessarily criminal. Um, But the reason I want to focus on that I've been thinking about a lot lately is The reason why the people should have the power to remove a president based on abuse of power, specifically, even without making out the technical elements of a particular crime that you or I might be charged for are because the president is special. We like to say no one's above the law, but you know what, the president is a little bit above the law. We learned that after the Mueller investigation because there's guidance in the Department of Justice that we all, you know, many of us bemoan that you cannot indict a sitting president of the United States. So he's special. He has special powers and there are things that only the president can do. Only the president can negotiate in a bilateral way with, with, with another country. Only the president can order a nuclear strike. Only the president can declassify certain information on his own without going through any process. And the fact that the president has not only special power but unique power is the thing that makes abuse of power a, a viable and important and in fact central basis for impeachment. I'll give you a couple of examples. Alan Dershowitz comes on the floor of the Senate, and he says, it must be a crime, must be a crime, and all these guys say it must be a crime. I've never heard anyone respond to a couple of simple hypotheticals. Now, imagine the President of the United States decides in his unique power, because he's the original power of classification and declassification, he decides to declassify the names of our spies abroad, declassify the locations of our nuclear submarines, makes them public, declassify, in the worst-case scenario, the nuclear codes, all sorts of information that will be horrifically damaging to the national security of this country. Guess what? Not one of those things is a crime. You couldn't charge the President during his time in office or after his time in office because he has sole authority, because he has special, unique power and authority in this country. And the idea that you couldn't uh, remove a President of the United States on an abuse of power article of impeachment for doing those things that I just described is preposterous.
0: So, yesterday, Alan Dershowitz made the argument on the floor of the Senate that the President actually could do any of that. Um, not just because it 's not technically a crime, but because his re election is by definition in the public interest, and therefore it is not a crime or a misdemeanor or a high crime or misdemeanor it is, it is a legitimate exercise of presidential power um, I, I know that he 's kind of walked that back a little bit this morning, but yeah. th- this this extension of of presidential absolute power that is effectively being argued is chilling to me, um, in particular with an election coming up and thinking about what could be done to, to engineer a re-election. Yeah. How, do we, how do we interpret that?
1: You interpret it as being nonsense. I mean, if I, uh, you know, a central feature of my current life, professionally, is, the op- is is to oppose the thesis that the re-election of the President of the United States is in the public interest. Um, he makes these blanket statements. You know, the, one of the funny things about Alan Durshowitz is basically nobody agrees with that thesis and he tried to turn that to a strength and said, the reason you know that I'm right is no one has ever agreed with me in the last 150 years. Um, I, look, I think a lot, that argument and the adoption of that argument by the other presidential lawyers is kind, is kind of shocking. But you see in the reaction to it that I don't think it's really bought by senators and I don't think it's really um, even fully bought by Alan Dershowitz himself because He's doing a rare thing. He's coming on television and walking back and saying his words were misconstrued because it plays that, I think that was a setback. There are are various setbacks and people had high moments and, and low moments. I think that was a setback for the president's arguments because it kind of takes your breath away. That and the absurd performance, mere presence of a gentleman named Ken Starr to argue about the bane of impeachment was another setback for those guys. So you
0: are um, a very proud alum of the Department of Justice, having been both a line prosecutor and the US Attorney for the Southern District. Um, I know that you, you take enormous pride in the, the, the public service that you and your colleagues did there, and um, there's a lot of dismay about what's happening in the Department of Justice now. Yeah. Um, what's the state of the Justice Department, and um, if a Democrat's elected and is able to actually take office, what, what has to happen to fix it?
1: So. Um Look, the Justice, Par- Justice Department is a huge entity. It's a big institution, um, something like 100,000 people. And it includes the Bureau of Prisons, it includes the FBI, and the DEA, and all the US Attorney's Offices, and this thing called Maine Justice. And in the Main, the vast majority of things that happen there, I still believe, uh, at the line level, are done with integrity, and with purity, and without fear or favor, which is the oath you take when you enter that department. Uh, Whether it's, you know, whether it's drug cases or political corruption cases or fraud cases uh, or sex trafficking cases, it's all good work. And I tell law students who ask me all the time, should I go to the Department of Justice? Should I go to the Southern District of New York? Even though I don't like what's happening at the top, I say, absolutely. If you believe in public service, there's no finer place to serve your country than that place. At the top, I have a lot of worry about some of the decision-making going on, about, what looks like politicized decision making going on beginning with and maybe even going you know further back in time when bill barr put his own gloss on the Mueller report and i think delayed the release of that report uh inordinately and so you know this this launching of an investigation into the investigators even though there was already a department of uh, an office of inspector general investigation going on An important principle of justice is that not only must justice be done, it must be seen to be done. That's why you have rules like conflict of interest and recusal, because people have to have faith that decisions are being made not in the interest of politics, but based on the law and the facts. Even if it's not the case that they're being made for political reasons. And I think this Justice Department at the top with Bill Barr uh, is, is causing legitimate and rational people to question whether or not he's serving as you know, a, a person trying to support the president of the United States, as opposed to the rule of law. Now, I will tell you one person uh, who has not, I think, trashed his or her reputation and has done a very good job in the long-standing traditions of non-political justice in the department is the current FBI director, Chris Ray, who does not ca- who does not use the president's talking points, um, who does not kowtow, who defends his institution, who mostly keeps his mouth shut and lets the work speak for itself. So that gives me some hope that that important agency that's taken a lot of hits recently and legitimately so, uh, is fine and, and will stand up. What needs to happen when a new administration comes in? I think they need to make sure that they appoint people who care about the rule of law, who care about justice, and don't care about politics, understand the line between law enforcement and politics, and don't let people cross that line. I don't know if there need to be new protocols put in place, but it's about bringing in good people who want to restore good faith and independence.
0: I want to ask a, a, a what would have been a political fan fiction question a few years ago, and now scarily something we actually have to entertain. Um, let's say that uh, uh, a Democrat wins the election in November, and um, Trump says, "No, that, that didn't happen. It was uh, it was a rigged election. I didn't lose, and I'm not going." I mean, right? I mean, like we, we have laugh. to entertain this. Like, we, ser- what happens?
1: How does that? How does that play out? How do you how do you see that? We all that? take refuge in the Rose Bowl. I don't know. <laughs> um, so I look. I, so I think the likelihood of that of his not leaving, just straight up, you know, barricading the doors, is unlikely. And I don't think that would be tolerated by civil society. I don't think it would be tolerated by the cabinet. Although who the hell knows? I think a more realistic risk, that's almost not even a, you know, a risk. I think it's almost a certainty. Um, that if it's a close election, I think Ian Bremmer, who I think you had on stage last year, and I, I just interviewed for my podcast this week, who talks about global risk, we had a long discussion about it on the podcast this week, in a close election, particularly in a close election in which Trump loses and does leave office peacefully, he will do everything he can to undermine the legitimacy of his opponent's victory, his people will do everything they can to undermine the legitimacy of the other person's victory, and you will have 60, 70 million people who will not believe that that is their president? Does it border on violence? I mean, there are some crazy things being said by some people in some parts of the country where they support the president about how they will react. And not all of it is nonviolent. And if you have a country in what you think we're polarized now, you think we're divided now, now think about what happens in a close election where Donald Trump will say with great fervor that illegal people, illegal aliens, in his words, voted, space aliens may have voted, dead people voted and I should have won in a landslide, and all, all of his supporters believe it when he says it, what is that going to do for legitimacy? What is that going to do in the Senate? What is that going to do for an agenda for the next Democratic president? It's kind of worrisome to think about.
0: So we, we have like 10 months, give or take, nine months. What do we, what do we need to do?
1: So, so you know, everyone has a lot of issues they care about, whether it's climate change, or it's um, uh, income inequality, or it's criminal justice reform, like all those things that you care about in the world uh, if you're a progressive, all of those things will be worse if Donald Trump wins, and all of those things have a chance to be better if Donald Trump loses. And so my humble suggestion is care about your issues, care about the particular policy preferences that you want, um, support whatever candidate you want, but I have come to the conclusion that whatever your specific issue is that you care about and it's important for your family and for the world, the number one way to get there in nine months is to have a different president. So don't forget the forest for the trees. Think about that thing happening in November, uh, and not just the, the, the one thing you're caring about right now.
0: So we were hoping to end on an optimistic note I think that that's the best we're going to do. Um, so thank you. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Appreciate both. being here. Thank you, everyone.